This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Park CHP is in pursuit at this point, has taken over the pursuit, and it's continuing here, uh, westbound on the 210. No sign of him slowing down. There he is. You can see him swinging his hand there at, at vehicles as he's passing by. Very strange activity here. There he goes, punching the cars. That's what he's doing. He's punching the vehicles as he's passing. Very dangerous for the driver here on this motorcycle, but also, you know, for the people that are driving next to him, unknown to what's going on, all of a sudden some guy on a motorcycle comes up and punches your car. Uh, you know, definitely strange activity in a pursuit. We've actually never seen something quite like this. Uh, again, high-speed high chase here on this motorcycle coming out of the San Bernardino area. We've all seen a police chase on TV, or, for some, in real life. As the suspect tries desperately to evade the convoy of police cruisers chasing behind, a helicopter hovers above, narrating every move. Those witnessing the action collectively wondering when and how the pursuit will end. It's no wonder why scenes like this make for captivating television. They know it will likely end with either the suspect pulling over or crashing, but ultimately they almost always end up in handcuffs. Every now and then, however, a police chase delivers more action and drama than anyone could have predicted. In fact, occasionally, Authorities are left just as shocked as the public. Take the chase between 29-year-old Las Vegas resident John Philippe James and the Arizona State Police. It started around 9 p.m. on the night of May 27, 2019, when an officer recognized the stolen Mercedes SUV he was driving. The officer ran the plate number, which confirmed his suspicion. When the trooper drove up behind, the SUV started to speed up. The driver made it clear that he had no intention of stopping, and as he ran through a red light, the officer hit the siren, and the chase was on. With speeds at times exceeding 100 miles per hour, James was desperate to evade capture. He was driving the SUV into oncoming lanes, at one point barely avoiding a collision with another police car. Before heading onto the interstate, he unsuccessfully attempted to carjack two other vehicles, as the chase continued on the ground, a helicopter was called in to track the nighttime pursuit from the sky above. While police did manage to get ahead of the driver and deploy spike strips, the attempt was only partially successful, blowing out just one of the four tires. The flat tire did little to slow the chase, and James continued as if nothing happened. For over an hour, the stolen Mercedes headed north along the interstate until it got near the city of Prescott, where the chase turned west. The state of Arizona is famous for its diverse geography, vast deserts, incredible rock formations, and of course, deep canyons. After all, it is home to the Grand Canyon. While the interstate highway is mostly straight and easy to drive fast, navigating the roads along the state's more scenic routes can be a bit tricky, especially at night, and especially with a flat tire. But none of this was a problem for John Philippe James. He was in a zone confident in his driving abilities after keeping police at bay for what must have felt like an eternity. He had skillfully, along with a lot of luck, led the pursuit for about 70 miles, but his good fortune was about to run out, or not, depending on how you look at it. With state troopers in close pursuit and working with only three good tires, as the SUV rounded a tight corner, it lost traction 
and began skidding off the road. Leaving the pavement at that speed could have been deadly had it collided with a large tree or lamppost. Thankfully, there was no such obstacle in the way. Unfortunately, there was a 500-foot-deep canyon. James quickly became aware that, with or without him, the SUV was going off the cliff. So, he did what anyone would do in that situation, and channeled his inner Hollywood stuntman. With only seconds to spare, he jumped from the stolen Mercedes as it careened off the edge of the cliff. Falling the distance of about one and a half football fields, the SUV slammed into the rocky canyon floor below. As expected, the damage was immense, and the car was a total write-off. Incredibly, James suffered only minor injuries in the incident. An officer following close behind saw the dramatic scene unfold and was watching when the suspect hid in a tree. Although John Philippe James did not provide ID when he was arrested, he was still charged with a number of criminal offenses. He was hit with two counts of aggravated DUI causing damage, failure to comply with an officer, and false reporting, just to name a few. This is not the only time when a chase ended with a car flying over a cliff. On the afternoon of June 30, 2020, police responded to reports of a man firing a gun in Davenport, California, a town near Santa Cruz. It seemed 56-year-old John Kenenju really needed a ride and decided that standing in the middle of the highway shooting his gun into the air would no doubt get someone to pull over. It didn't take long for someone to stop, but even with a weapon, the carjacking didn't go as planned. The vehicle was occupied by two women, a mother, her daughter, and her daughter's baby in the back seat. When they were forced to stop, the mother immediately got out of the passenger side and approached the gunman. As she did, she told her daughter, who was driving, to take off. The woman later told police that if anyone was going to get shot that day, it was not going to be her family. Shocked at how the events were playing out, John Kenenju watched helplessly as his would-be ride drove off. Not only that, but he was now being confronted by an angry grandmother who seemed less than amused. Reportedly, all he could do was ask why she had done that. A bit confused, but undeterred, Kenenju attempted to carjack several other vehicles. He was eventually able to force a 26-year-old from her Honda Civic after she put it in reverse and tried to drive away from the gunman. He told her to get out of the car before hopping in and taking off. Initially, the stolen car headed north along Highway 1, otherwise known as the Pacific Coast Highway. A short distance later, the driver turned the car around and headed back towards Santa Cruz. As the 26-year-old carjack victim was giving a report to a sheriff's deputy, she watched in disbelief as her stolen car raced past. With police in close pursuit and little chance of escaping, John Kenenju thought he might have a chance if he could just make it to the ocean. But instead of stopping when he reached the shoreline, he hit the gas pedal and launched the Honda Civic off a 30-foot cliff. Unlike the previous story, this carjacker remained in the driver's seat for the whole ride. As soon as the car hit the ocean, the heavy waves began submerging it. As witnesses gathered above, they watched in amazement as the driver managed to climb out and start swimming toward the rocky cliff. Also gathering to watch the drama from the cliff edge above 
were California Highway Patrol officers. With guns drawn, they waited patiently for the suspect to finish the exhausting climb, where he was immediately taken into custody. Incredibly, no one, including Kenyenju, was injured during the chase. He told investigators that the gun he used was actually a harmless replica, but, unfortunately for him, proof of that had been washed away by the ocean current. In a September 2020 court appearance, he pleaded not guilty to more than 13 charges, including carjacking, attempted carjacking, and several weapon-related offenses. If you're looking for something a little more fancy in your high-speed chases, why not try it with a stretch limousine? On April 15, 2006, a New York State trooper pulled over a limousine that was clocked doing over 120 miles per hour in a 65-mile-an-hour zone. As the officer walked the length of the car and approached the driver's window, the luxury vehicle sped off. A police pursuit, albeit a strange one, ensued. The 20-foot-long white limousine raced along the interstate, passing other vehicles like they were standing still. At those speeds, it didn't take long for the vehicle's transmission to blow, which forced the car to stop on the shoulder. Police saw their chance to box it in, but before they could get in position, the driver hit the gas pedal and took off again, only this time in reverse. Wow, this is insane. Uh... I thought I'd seen it all as well. Apparently, we've not seen it all. Police watched in amazement as the limo drove backwards around the corner of a highway on-ramp. From there, the driver made their way down residential streets, at times hitting speeds of 40 miles an hour, still driving in reverse. Pushing the vehicle to its limits, the driver ran a stop sign and tried to make a tight corner. But with a car that size, it just wasn't happening. The car crashed backwards into a tree on an unsuspecting homeowner's property. This time, the police had the car boxed in before the driver even knew what happened. The chase was over, but officers still didn't know who was at the wheel or how many people were in the limo. In a car designed to comfortably seat half a dozen passengers, in the end, only two people emerged. The first was 26-year-old Dane Christian, an employee at a limousine service company. He told officers that the reason he took off was to avoid getting in trouble for driving with a suspended license. After being charged with more than 30 driving-related offenses, as well as trashing an almost $100,000 limousine, the suspended license was probably the very least of his problems. The other passenger in the car, it turns out, was the driver's friend. He told authorities that he had no idea his friend would react the way he did, and that he found the ride terrifying. Dane Christian, or the limo lunatic, as he would be dubbed by the media, is, a bit surprisingly, still in the limousine and transportation industry. Would you ever take a ride from someone called the limo lunatic? My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. You know the saying, everything is bigger in Texas? Apparently, that goes for their car chases as well. In fact, the pursuit that took place in May 1969 is not only considered the craziest car chase in the history of the Lone Star State, but it would go on to inspire Steven Spielberg's very first feature film, The Sugarland Express. It all started around 2 a.m. on May 2, 1969, when 22-year-old Robert Dent, better known as Bobby, and his 21-year-old wife, Isla Fay, were driving their sports car through Port Arthur, Texas. The couple had been married for about a year, and Bobby had just been released from jail two weeks earlier for vandalizing vending machines. Isla Fay herself was out on parole for committing forgery. Needless to say, the couple were not big fans of the police. So, when an officer driving in the opposite direction noticed their headlights were on high and signaled to lower the brightness, Bobby Dent just ignored it. The police car turned around and switched on the siren, but instead of stopping, Bobby just hit the gas. The chase was on, for about three minutes. Unfortunately for them, their fast-looking sports car broke down, and they were forced to pull over. With the police just a few seconds behind, they made the decision to continue on foot and headed into a nearby forest. As they ran blindly through the trees, they eventually came across some lights in the distance. When they got closer, they could see that it was a house, but before approaching, they would need a plan. Their priority was to find another car and get out of town as quickly as possible. The idea Bobby came up with was simple, but if it worked, it would be a bit genius as well. Knocking on the front door of the house, they told the owners that they were hitchhikers who had been attacked and robbed of their belongings. They asked the homeowners to call the police and let them know what happened, and to send an officer. It was just after 6 a.m. when 27-year-old Texas State Trooper Kenneth Crone responded to the call and arrived at the house. He was expecting to meet two hitchhikers, but when he entered the home, he was met with two guns pointed at his head. Once they disarmed him, Bobby and Isla Fay used the officer's own handcuffs to restrain him. With arms out front, the couple led Officer Crone to his police car and forced him into the driver's seat. Isla Fay hopped into the back seat while Bobby took position next to him in the front. With a shotgun to his back and a pistol to his ribs, Crone did as instructed, and that was just to do one thing. Drive. Without much of a follow-up plan, the couple told Officer Crone to drive them toward Houston, which was on the way to Isla Fay's parents' house. She had two kids from a previous relationship who were staying with her parents, and she wanted to see them. It all may have seemed normal had they not taken a police officer hostage and forced him to drive them in his patrol car. Speaking of the patrol car, it was obviously well-marked, so it didn't take much time for authorities to locate it once they were back on the highway. By the time they entered the city limits of Houston, they were being trailed by over 100 vehicles, including local police, state police, sheriff's deputies, ambulances, and the media. 
Because the suspects were traveling in a police car, authorities were able to use the two-way radio to speak with the kidnappers. Acutely aware they were holding an officer at gunpoint, the conversations remained calm and supportive. During the pursuit, which lasted two days, the lead negotiator even let the couple stop for gas and food, not once, but twice. The hope was that by being overly accommodating, Bobby and Isla Faye would come to their senses and release the hostage. The couple, however, had no plans to surrender anytime soon. On multiple occasions, Bobby told negotiators that he would never go back to jail. When asked if he would at least let his wife go, he said she wanted to stay right where she was. So, the chase continued, spanning hundreds of miles over the course of those two days. Every so often, Bobby would get on the two-way radio and remind everyone listening that if they got too close, he would kill Officer Crone. He would repeatedly claim that he had nothing to lose and promised that he would not be taken alive. At that point, no demands had been made, so the growing caravan had no idea where they were headed. It wasn't until shortly after the second gas and food break that Bobby started negotiating some terms. He said they were headed to Isla Faye's parents' house northwest of Houston and would release their hostage if police would not interfere. Authorities had been nothing but helpful this whole time, so it was no surprise they agreed to this request as well. Negotiators even said they would allow the couple a 15-minute head start after their visit with the kids. For having no experience negotiating, it seemed things were going really well for the fugitives. However, they could not have been more wrong. It was around noon when Bobby, Isla Fay, and their hostage arrived at their parents' house. As agreed, the police kept their distance and stayed a mile down the road. The couple exited the patrol car and forced Officer Crone to walk in front of them up to the house. Things were quiet and calm when the trio walked through the front door. Crone entered first and immediately saw three officers inside with their weapons drawn. He quickly dropped to the floor, fully exposing Bobby who was directly behind him holding a gun. Before even getting through the doorway, Bobby was hit with a shotgun blast so hard that it knocked him back outside, down the steps, and onto the front lawn. Isla Faye, who was not far behind, let out a horrifying scream, dropped her gun, and immediately surrendered. Bobby Dent did not survive the ambush, leaving Isla Faye to endure the legal consequences alone. She was sentenced to just five years in prison for her part in the events, but, incredibly, was released after serving just five months. Isla Faye Dent died of natural causes in 1992. Over the years, police have chased just about everything. RVs to school buses, ice cream trucks to lawnmowers, and, of course, limousines. Most of the time, authorities are able to end the pursuit using standard tactics. But what if the vehicle they're chasing was built to be unstoppable? That's exactly what happened in May 1995, when 35-year-old Sean Nelson stole an M60 battle tank from the National Guard Armory in San Diego and led police on a 23-minute rampage. 
It looked like a scene from a movie, but it was real. Dozens of police cars trailed behind, but how exactly do you stop a tank? Sean Timothy Nelson grew up in San Diego and, after high school, enlisted in the Army, where he specialized in the maintenance of tanks. In 1980, after just two years in the service, he was discharged for what Army officials called multifaceted disciplinary problems. When he returned home to San Diego, he began working as a plumber, and by all accounts was good at his job and excellent with the customers. In 1984, Nelson married his longtime girlfriend and not long after opened his own plumbing business. For the next few years, things were pretty much perfect. Then, everything started to fall apart. In 1988, Nelson's mother died. Four years later, he lost his father. When he started unraveling and using drugs like methamphetamine, his marriage fell apart. As if it couldn't get any worse, as the divorce was being finalized, he suffered extensive back and neck injuries after a motorcycle accident. A few years later, someone broke into his work van and stole all his tools, leaving him without an income. It didn't take long for the utility companies to start turning off the power and other services due to mounting unpaid bills. By the early 1990s, with his life spiraling out of control, Sean Nelson's behavior became increasingly erratic. He took up an interest in searching for gold and started digging right there in his backyard. A witness reported that one of the holes, referred to jokingly as the mine shaft, was almost 20 feet deep. Yet, despite repeated digging, nothing of value was ever discovered. With no income and a growing meth addiction, his problems just got worse and worse. He began drinking more, and the fights with his living girlfriend grew louder and more violent. On multiple occasions, police had to be dispatched when neighbors complained he was disturbing the peace. When she left him in April 1995, Nelson reached his breaking point. He confided in friends that he was considering ending it all, putting the blame mostly on government agencies he believed failed him over the years. So, a few weeks later, on May 17, 1995, the 35-year-old drove the three miles from his house to the National Guard Armory in central San Diego. It was around 6.30 p.m. when he drove through the armory's open gate, stopping in the vehicle yard. There was barely anyone around, and no one really noticed him, even though he wasn't wearing a shirt. He walked around the vehicle yard until he found the tanks, trying unsuccessfully to start two of them. Before breaking the padlock on a third one and climbing in, he was finally spotted by an army employee who started approaching the shirtless stranger. Closing the hatch and pushing the start button, the 57-ton M60 battle tank roared to life and lurched forward. Realizing there was nothing he could do to stop it, the army official called the San Diego police, and the pursuit was on. Armed with a 105mm cannon, an anti-aircraft gun, and a mounted machine gun, thankfully the tank was not carrying any ammunition when it was stolen. While that came as a huge relief, Authorities still had no way of stopping the massive military machine and watched helplessly as it crushed everything in its path. From the armory, Nelson was now heading down residential streets, destroying cars, RVs, utility poles, and fire hydrants. Over 5,000 households lost power as electrical cables were pulled down. He ran over my truck. 
And then he took out the telephone poles over there and he headed down the street and ran over that blue car right there. One resident said the tank drove onto a lawn and stopped just feet from the house before it backed up and kept going. The tank headed out of the residential neighborhoods and west toward the highway. It took out several traffic lights and a bus stop shelter along the way. Like any other motorist, when he reached Interstate 805, Nelson merged with traffic going southbound. Within minutes, the tank was being trailed by dozens of police cars and emergency vehicles whom, like everyone else watching, were powerless to stop it. When Nelson noticed a pedestrian bridge that crossed over the interstate, he aimed a tank toward one of the support pillars and rammed it. Failing to knock it down the first time, he backed up and drove into it several more times. Fortunately, the bridge held, and the tank continued down the highway. By now, the police had managed to close off all traffic, stranding thousands of motorists as the tank rolled on. We had a tank that left the armory. It's crushed numerous vehicles. It's like a war zone over here. Over six miles and 23 insane minutes later, Nelson attempted to drive the tank over the highway median into oncoming traffic. The concrete divider didn't fully crumble, forcing the tank to try and roll over it instead of through it. As it climbed, the tank became stuck, eventually losing one of its wheel tracks. This was the opportunity police were waiting for, and they wasted no time. Within seconds, four officers had climbed on top of the tank. As Nelson tried desperately to maneuver the assault vehicle off the highway divider, authorities were using bolt cutters to gain access through the hatch. It only took a few seconds before they got it open and had their guns pointed at the driver. When Sean Nelson ignored orders to surrender, police open-fired. He was hit in the neck near the left shoulder and was pronounced dead shortly after arriving at the hospital. Police later said the shooting was justified, stating that if he had broken loose, it was probable he would have killed someone. Given the level of destruction left in the tank's path, incredibly, there were no other fatalities or injuries reported. Not surprisingly, when the dust finally settled, the focus turned to the National Guard armory and to the question of how someone could walk in and steal a battle tank. With no real answers except the somewhat understandable excuse of how could they possibly foresee that happening, the army immediately tightened security around its military equipment. This guy's running. He's approaching Red Hill. There he goes, right through the red light. Oh! Officer's ready there for him. There he goes, wrong side of the road. Oh, he just hit that car! Ugh. Oh no! He's get, he might be carjacking. He might be doing a carjacking here. Ugh. Wow, this is a terrible situation. In a study released by the International Association of Chiefs of Police, only 35% of suspects actually get away during a police pursuit. If you think those odds are still pretty good, you should know that the report goes on to state that out of every seven chases, someone gets injured. One out of every 35 ends with someone dying. Also, it's important to know those most likely to be killed in a police pursuit are the suspects, followed by other motorists and police in that order. So the next time you see those flashing lights in the rearview mirror, remember, the odds of getting away are not in your favor.
True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched by Haley Gray and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.